It's hard to know where we're going, but we do know that the single biggest threat of climate change is the collapse of food systems. I'm Rufus Griscom, and this is The Next Big Idea. Today, why climate change is something you can taste. September 2015, Maharashtra, India. Amanda Little is flying in a tiny prop plane, trying not to puke. It's not the rank smell of sweat and stress that's making her queasy, though it probably isn't helping. She's nauseous because this King Air B-200 is headed straight for a black and blue monsoon cloud, a cloud that's more than 20,000 feet from nose to tail. From the open cockpit, the captain shouts, most pilots are trained to avoid these storm systems. We're trained to enter them. He turns the yoke and the plane goes sideways. It's like a scene from Top Gun, but with a different soundtrack. Instead of Kenny Loggins singing about going to the danger zone, a robot voice from the plane's control panel warns, bank alert. The view outside Amanda's window goes smoky black as they pass through a layer of moisture along the monsoon's underbelly. And then the captain announces, we're in. They've entered an air shaft at the center of the monsoon, and their little plane is now being sucked upward at a rate of 800 feet per minute. Amanda tries to lift her hands, but the G-force pins them to her lap. Fire left, the captain says, and his co-pilot flicks a switch on the plane's dashboard. A flare, which looks like a stick of dynamite, shoots out of the plane's left wing, leaving a trail of orange fire in its wake. That flare is filled with sodium chloride, table salt mixed with flammable potassium. When it hits the cloud, trillions of superfine salt particles will disperse, bond with nearby water molecules, and hopefully turn them into raindrops. It's called cloud seeding, an environmentally benign way to encourage moisture-dense clouds to release precipitation. And in Maharashtra, where 80% of farms rely on rain for irrigation, it could be a lifesaver. And unfortunately, I don't mean this metaphorically. Over a six-month period in 2015, as a years-long drought stretched on, cutting agricultural production by nearly a third, 1,300 debt-burdened local farmers committed suicide. 20 minutes after firing the first flare, the captain circles back to see if it worked. We've got drops, he says, and dips the wings in a celebratory swoop. And as he continues his victory spiral, Amanda opens her purse and vomits. You see, Amanda is not a regular passenger on cloud seeding flights. She's a journalist who spent years traveling far and wide, risking her life, or at least her lunch, to better understand what climate change is doing to food production. At the same time that the global population hurdles towards 10 billion, we're losing millions of acres of arable farmland. Regions like Maharashtra are facing severe and prolonged droughts. And more than 30 million people in over three dozen countries are, as the UN puts it, one step away from starvation. Here in the US, shifting climate patterns and natural disasters are not only disrupting harvests from California to Florida, but they're also degrading the quality of the food we eat. Climate change, in the words of my guest, Amanda Little, is becoming a problem we can taste. Amanda is a contributing opinion writer for Bloomberg and a professor of journalism and science writing at Vanderbilt University. 
Her fascinating book, The Fate of Food, What We'll Eat in a Bigger, Hotter, Smarter World, was the recipient of the 2019 Nautilus Award and the subject of her recent TED Talk, seen 1.4 million times. The Fate of Food lays out the threat climate change poses to our food system. Foods we love, like coffee and wine, are losing their flavor. And crops we rely on, like corn and soy, are getting harder and harder to grow. If we don't make changes, there will come a time in the not-too-distant future when our current agricultural practices won't be adequate to feed the entire population. Luckily, it's not all doom and gloom. Amanda says that if we combine the wisdom of traditional farming practices with radical advances in agricultural technology, we might just be able to create a healthier, more sustainable, and perhaps even more delicious future. The LinkedIn Podcast Network is sponsored by TIAA. TIAA makes you a retirement promise, a promise of a guaranteed retirement paycheck for life. Learn more at TIAA.org backslash promises pay off. Amanda Little, thank you for joining us on the Next Big Idea podcast. Rufus Griscom, thank you for having me. Amanda, you spent five years reporting this book. You went to 13 countries in 18 states. You got deathly ill in Ethiopia. You braved scorpions in Mexico. You ate snakes and insects and fish food pellets and lab-grown meats. You felt the need to get in an old propeller plane and fly into a monsoon to document the process of seeding rain clouds in India. You were really hell-bent on telling the story, weren't you? <laughs> Okay, I I didn't eat snakes, but but I did all the other stuff. And yeah, it was a story that became sort of more and more important to me as I got deeper into it. I didn't write it as a an expert in food, certainly not as a food practitioner. I'm a pretty meager cook and I'm not a food activist. But it's one of these stories that's as old as time, right? It's it's, it's a deeply essential story. How do you feed the world? I mean, this is a story that's been propelling humanity for the better part of, you know, 13,000 years. But it's especially interesting now as we face this incredible paradox, right? Global population is increasing to nearly 10 billion people by mid-century. And meanwhile, growing middle classes are demanding more diverse and protein-dense diets. But arable land is decreasing, you know, the IPCC International Panel on Climate Change has said that we'll see a 2 to 6% decline. That's millions of acres of arable land going offline every decade while population wow. climbs. And yeah, it's the story that needed to be told. And I really had no idea what I was getting into when I uh, began to write it. But uh, yes, it took me to some extreme frontiers. Uh, your family must have been worried sick. <laughs> nah, I don't think so, because uh, that's been sort of the way I've approached my reporting in the past. I did a, a book before this one called Power Trip, the story of America's love affair with energy, for which I went to deep uh, sea oil rigs and climbed inside the New York City electricity grid. And yeah, I, I, I think maybe it's because I... I, I just seek out stories that will tell themselves, takes pressure off mm. of me as a writer to tell it beautifully <laughs> if there's yeah. a lot of excitement to be told. Yeah. Well, I think it may be time to share with our listeners that you, Amanda Little, 
are my sister. And I and other members of your family were worried sick about you while you were engaging in all this perilous daring do to report this book. What were you thinking? <laughs> you were not at all worried about me. Come on. I certainly was. That's ridiculous. <laughs> well, I'm so happy that you wrote this book and safely returned to us. And I have to say, sis, that it's an incredible treat to have a podcast conversation with you. It's a beautiful confluence of worlds. I'm going to do my very best to speak to you with the deference you deserve as a professor at Vanderbilt and a TED talker and an award-winning journalist. And I'm going to try not to rib you as I normally would, given that you are my whippersnapper of a sister, but I might slip up now and then. I hope you do, because I, it'll be so disarming for me to have a conversation with you that lacks sarcasm. <laughs> <laughs> okay. Uh, that is, uh, I, apparently I've been exp expressing my love with food, not, not words, but um, okay. Uh, well, well, I will say I, I, it's, it's a very interesting topic for us as a family because we were raised in a household in which food was a proxy for love right? We had a mother who was extremely generous with butter and cream and flavors and um, hot meals every night on the table by candlelight. That was the way that we had family ritual. That explains my midsection. <laughs> it does. Although you've been really working on that. Yeah, food is a very emotional issue for many of us. And it's um, it's hard to think about disruptions in food supply, especially at a moment when, for many of us, it feels like we have too much food, not too little food. Yeah. Well, no, I think this very personal nature of food, right, that it's something we put in our bodies, it's something we share as families, is, you know, makes it this incredible kind of way into this incredibly important topic, you know, which is what's happening to our planet. And that, I think, is a perfect segue to big idea number one. Climate change is becoming something you can taste. I've seen the various impacts of drought, heat, flooding, superstorms, invasive insects, blights, weather volatility, and shifting seasons on food production across the country and the world. From Washington to Florida and from Guatemala to Australia, and the upshot is this, climate change is a kitchen table issue in the literal sense. And the foods we love most, the most flavor rich and nutrient dense crops are the most vulnerable to these pressures. In recent months and years, extreme weather events have destroyed vineyards in California and France, olive groves in Italy, citrus and peach orchards in Florida and Georgia, apple and cherry orchards in Wisconsin and Michigan, avocado farms in Mexico, coffee and cacao farms in dozens of equatorial nations, millions of acres of soy and cornfields, and dairy and livestock operations the world over. You know, I think a great place to start, Amanda, would be for you to scare the heck out of us. I mean, most of us are already deeply concerned and alarmed by climate change, but most of us, or at least I, have not been worried about our supply of food. So can you give us the bad news out of the gate? Take off the gloves. How alarmed should we be? So the bad news is written very clearly into the climate literature produced by scientists worldwide, right? They are saying 
that these increasing pressures, these increasingly volatile growing conditions are paralyzing farmers. Um, the IPCC has said that by mid-century, we may see a threshold of global warming beyond which current agricultural practices can no longer support large human civilizations. That's pretty alarming. The key words, though, are current agricultural practices, mm -hmm. right? Yeah. The way we're growing food right now may not be able to feed future populations. But if we reform and improve and uh, reimagine food growing practices, we could, you know, significantly change that future. Not only could we find better and more efficient ways to grow healthier food for people, but we could begin to sequester and draw down CO2 in the atmosphere into our farms so that agriculture transitions from climate sinner to climate saint. Remember that 20% roughly of greenhouse gas emissions come from agriculture, right? We are driving climate change through our conventional food growing practices. And those same pressures, right, the, the pressures of these cataclysmic weather events, the pressures of even subtle changes like shifting seasons, warmer winters, um, spring freezes, you know, changing by a week or two, um, those can wipe out entire crops. Uh, and we're seeing that happen. Since the publication of your book, we've seen ever-escalating problems, right? We've seen record-setting hurricanes in the Atlantic, mega droughts in the Southwest, fires raging across California. That's right. The people of California know this so well. The Pacific Northwest has been devastated by wildfires uh, that caused, just in Sonoma County, billions of dollars of damage to vineyards that have been around for hundreds of years. It will take decades to get those vineyards back online. But likewise, livestock producers were devastated by the wildfires. We also saw, um, you know, again, more subtle impacts of heat and drought all throughout the state of California, affecting, you know, berry production, affecting almond production. All these water-intensive crops like almonds and avocados are hugely hit by climate pressures. The crops that we love most, the most delicious crops and the most high-nutrient mm. crops, like very specific conditions in which to thrive. Wine uh, is a great example. Vineyards are a great example. They like it hot, but not too hot. They like some amount of humidity, but not too much humidity. Even subtle fluctuations in growing conditions can throw off crops, like coffee and cacao, for example, need very specific conditions in which to thrive. But meantime, the easiest crops to grow are you know, soy and corn, for example. Um, but even in the last summer, we saw the derecho storms destroy millions of acres of soy and corn crops in Iowa and throughout the Midwest. The previous summer, it was excessive rainfall. It made the, the, the fields so wet that they, they couldn't literally get the machinery into the fields to do the planting and the harvesting. So it's even hitting the kind of row crops that are essentially, you know, almost automatically grow in this country. And it's, it's hard to know where we're going, but we do know that the single biggest threat of climate change is the collapse of food systems. And, and when you say climate change is something we can taste, which great line, by the way, there's a wonderful metaphorical point here, right, that the impact of climate change on food really, really hits home. It's personal for us. Do you also mean it literally? I, I mean, does it actually 
um, do some of these changes in the weather systems actually impact the flavor profile of, uh, of different foods? Yeah, that's something that has been true for vintners in particular, because grapes are like like coffee. They like heat, but too much of it can cause a kind of thermal shock that throws off their flavor. Um, so I've talked to vintners in France and in California, and they're saying that they're not getting the same flavors from their harvests because what they've been growing for 100 years is growing in such different conditions. I mean, of course, it always varies year to year. Uh, So in in some cases, it's a flavor problem. In other cases, it's a productivity problem. And for U.S. consumers, the this may show up as uh, my my strawberry is a little more bitter or my strawberry is a little sweeter or it's a little more expensive. In many parts of the world, this is a survival issue, right? You know, there are 30 million people facing severe famine in northeastern Nigeria, in South Sudan, in Somalia, in Yemen. You know, this this story is playing out in some regions as a, you know, flavor challenge or a, you know, let's adapt our production methods. And in other uh, regions of the world, it's can we survive? Absolutely. Well, I'm looking forward to a an international journey in the course of this conversation, uh, accompanying you on uh, some of these adventures with greater safety, not in single prop airplanes flying into monsoons. But uh, can we can we talk a little bit since we're on Pinot Noir and pistachios? Can we talk talk a little bit about about food snobbery and the role it plays in this in this kind of conversation and 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 this broader dynamic? And it's not as simple as eating local is good and big ag is bad. I mean, there, there, there are a lot of kind of countervailing forces, a lot of complexity. How do you feel about, you, you know, how people conventionally think about what it means to be a virtuous eater and how that squares with reality? Yeah, let me say that, you know, I, I really appreciate the intentions of advocates of sustainable food and um, healthy eating. You know, I, I lived in Brooklyn, New York for a long time and spent um, many hours in my local food co-op. And, uh, you know, I love a great farmer's market. Um, but I moved to Nashville, Tennessee, and that really shifted my understanding of things. I have neighbors who are backyard farmers and vegans and paleolithic dieters. Um, you know, I have friends who would probably rent an ox and a Mesopotamian plow to get closer to the ancient <laughs> roots of their nourishment if they could. I yeah. get food nostalgia, right? I and I think yeah. it's I think it's so much of what drives the conversation around food. And especially you see you hear these um you know, advocates of, of, of sustainable farming talking about um, the great value of agroecology, of permaculture, of sort of ancient forms of food production, um, of, you know, you know, moving backward in time, right? Like, let's not add technology to our food. Let's go back to pre-industrial agriculture. Um, and, and I, I am someone who honestly shops, as I said, you know, at at at, at supermarkets. I I feed my kids out of season fruit. Uh, you know, I feed my son the public school lunch. Right. Uh, I buy organic when I'm feeling flush, which means I often don't. And and I understand that living up to the kind of nostalgic and uh, you know almost purist ideals around sustainable food consumption is uh, perceived as elitist. 
it's it mm-hmm. requires a lot of money and time that yeah. a lot of people don't have. And that was very clear for me. Well, as you say, the the real problems we're facing are in regions where, you know, drought and weather change can just wipe out the entire food system and, and leave people in a state of famine. Can you tell us the story of Ruth Onyango and the importance of drought-resistant maize? So Ruth Onyango is this incredible kind of larger-than-life figure in Kenya. She has been on the Kenyan parliament. She's been a professor of nutrition and agroecology at at a major university there. She built uh, an NGO that educates and brings tools and technology to uh, smallholder farmers throughout Kenya and uh, throughout southeastern Africa. Um, She's really quite amazing and um, a brilliant and funny and warm-hearted person uh, who grew up on a tiny farm in Western Kenya. Um, And I visited her there and saw her at work as she was educating farmers about climate adaptations and adopting new seeds produced by Monsanto and funded by um, the Bill and Melinda Gates Foundation that are drought tolerant and that can help farmers, you know, adapt to these new conditions. And when I first met Ruth, I had been pretty jet lagged and I had been sick for a few days um, before I met her and I was kind of dragging and I uh, and I got out of this this truck that I that had been in for a couple of hours bouncing along the back roads of western Kenya and I say Jamba, Dr. Onyango, great to see you and she doubles over with laughter along with these kids nearby who are just pointing at me and stomping their feet um, so amused, and I had no idea what what I had done. But it turns out that Jambo means hello and welcome, uh, and Jamba means to fart. So my introduction to Ruth Anyango was fart, Ruth, fart. <laughs> <laughs> this is what happens when you grow up with two older brothers. You make fart jokes at inappropriate times. That's right. But this is, but, this but is but my the... <laughs> my long acquaintance with this venerable scholar and activist begins with uh, a total gaff. And, and so for her community, these modified seeds have been absolutely critical. That's right. So I was interested in the fact that these Monsanto seeds that had been developed using advanced breeding technologies, including genetic analysis, and uh, they were also testing GMO seeds um, that were pest resistant and also drought resistant. I was very curious as to how these seeds uh, might help me think about GMOs, which have obviously been extremely controversial in the U.S. They're also very controversial in Europe and in this region of Africa that I was visiting. And it hadn't occurred to me before I met Ruth that GMOs might be crucial to survival, right? Like I had seen the discussion around GMOs before I met Ruth as a kind of question as to whether we should label corn chips. And uh, I learned in this, you know, meeting with her uh, and in these days I spent with her on local farms that were struggling with major pest pressures with a lot of drought and heat problems, that GMOs might not be about corporate control of the food system. It might be about progress and ultimately survival. These kinds of innovations are happening all over the world. You write about the development of Kernza wheat in Kansas, and it seems like more varied crops that can handle different climates 
is, is pretty critical to the path forward. Yeah, so it's interesting, right? There are ways in which we may need to use advanced breeding technologies like GMOs, like uh, CRISPR and genetic editing tools to, to make heirloom crops like Kernza, uh, for example, which is a breed of wheat uh, derived from wild perennial wheatgrass that's been growing on Kansas prairies for millennia. But we need to adapt these ancient and heirloom crops using new breeding tools, right? And so Kernza is, you know, a very valuable crop in these new climate conditions um, because it grows 10-foot roots that can tap these deep reserves of groundwater. So it's a it's a very powerful plant in a water-scarce environment. But we need to, you know, adapt it for modern growing methods, right? Um, and likewise, we need to bring new breeding tools into play in regions that are dealing with the the most significant and immediate impacts of climate change, right? And so these nimble tools, these nimble breeding tools can be used to develop new varieties of maize, new varieties of wheat, for example, um, in the span of a year. Whereas conventional breeding technologies sometimes take seven, eight years to come up with a new kind of corn or a new kind of wheat, let's say, that can adapt to new conditions. And what the scientists of Kenya told me and what Ruth told me is, look, we need every tool in the toolbox. We need to protect mm. the ancient roots of, of our food systems. And we need to, you know, uh, elevate and support um, sustainable and traditional growing methods. But we also need new tools that can help us be nimble and help us respond to these totally unexpected pressures that are coming into play, whether it's insects, whether it's heat, whether it's too much water. It was Ruth Onyango and these Kenyan scientists that said to me, you have a very um, uh, you know, rigid understanding of what the future of food will look like. You're thinking either it's going to be, you know, old world agroecology and permaculture and regenerative farming, or it's going to be high tech. No, it's got to be a combination of both. And I had to leave, I had to travel, you know, 11,000 miles um, from the United States to figure that out. Well, that I think is a perfect segue to big idea number two, no industry is more motivated to solve climate change than agriculture. The International Panel on Climate Change has predicted that by mid-century, the world may reach a threshold of global warming beyond which current agricultural practices can no longer support large human civilizations. That's a direct quote. Food production and distribution is a major contributor to climate change, producing up to 20% of global greenhouse gas emissions, not far behind the transportation and energy sectors. No industry is more vulnerable to the impacts of climate change than agriculture, nor more motivated to convert itself from climate center to saint. Building climate resilient food systems will, as much as any other challenge, define human progress in the next century. So this is interesting. Not only is climate change potentially devastating our food system, but our food system is itself a major contributor to climate change. So there's a, there's a circular loop there and not the good kind. Having said that, as you say, the, the ag industry is motivated. If they get green faster, we can have both healthier food and reduce major contributions to climate change. So there's an opportunity here, if I'm re reading this right, 
to turn a vicious cycle into a virtuous cycle. That's exactly right. So put it simply, you can drive a combustion engine car through a heat wave or through a storm. You can operate a coal plant through a heat wave. You cannot grow food in these kinds of hostile conditions, right? And so the agriculture industry is feeling climate change bite back. It has been driving the climate problem for the better part of a century, um, and it is now on the receiving end of, of, of the problem. It's still continuing to drive the problem, right? Um, mm. Agrochemicals are incredibly fossil fuel intensive. They're derived from fossil fuels. It takes a lot of energy to produce them. Um, when you put lots of fertilizer on a field, it atomizes into the air and becomes an incredibly potent greenhouse gas. We know that livestock belches a lot of methane into the air, which is another incredibly potent greenhouse gas. We know that our food systems are very long distance and it, you have to truck and, and, and ship and fly perishable foods across thousands of miles every day to get to markets and people. So it's a very energy-intensive, a very emissions-intensive industry. But agriculture is uniquely positioned not just to help reduce and improve its own practices and sort of become less bad. It's also the only industry, unlike energy and transportation, that can solve the climate problem. And, and here's why. Humanity has pumped 100 billion gigatons of carbon into the atmosphere, right? You hear the Biden administration saying, like, look, we need to get to net zero carbon emissions by 2050. That's the mantra right now worldwide. And mm, yep. renewables and electric cars will help us get there, right? Because they'll put less emissions into the atmosphere. But none of those, none of those industries can suck the emissions out of the atmosphere. They, they cannot help stabilize the, the climate because we need to suck away the legacy load of carbon dioxide that's already in the atmosphere. And soil can do this. This is the most significant medium for carbon sequestration on planet Earth, right? Plants use photosynthesis to draw in CO2, to pull it down through their roots, and they pass it into the microbiome of the soil and they lock the carbon into the soil. And that carbon makes the soil richer and healthier. Um, and it makes it produce better and more abundant and healthier food. Uh, so there's this great opportunity <laughs> that you can counteract climate change and feed humanity. I bet you'll never look at soil in the same way. And after the break, I think you'll never look at meat in the same way either. We'll be right back. The LinkedIn Podcast Network is sponsored by TIAA. In the last 100 years, we've seen financial markets swing, new currencies come and go, decades of savings lost in days, all showing that a retirement plan without a guarantee, quite simply, isn't enough. So more than a retirement plan, TIAA makes you a retirement promise, a promise of a guaranteed retirement paycheck for life, a promise that pays off. Learn more at TIAA.org backslash promises pay off. Now, if you had to isolate a single problem at the core of the challenge in feeding the planet, I, I, I'm guessing it would be meat consumption. I know now, having read your book, it results in the leveling of forests, release of greenhouse gases, consumption of precious water. 
And yet, Amanda, you say, meat is the old sweetheart I can't quit. <laughs> you live it in is. Nashville, Tennessee. You describe yourself as a shark in chummed water. Yes, yes, <laughs> I live all the great barbecue. Right about five blocks from one of the best barbecue joints in the state. So, so how, how catastrophic is the problem, and how can we successfully wrestle with our, with our cravings? Yeah, well, we both grew up in a household where, um, you know, white meat and fish was almost considered vegetable matter. That is how much <laughs> red true. meat we were fed. But, um, but no, meat production puts enormous pressure on the environment. There's no doubt about it. What we have to keep in mind before I even get into the impacts is how much meat consumption has grown. Human population has doubled in the last 50 years and meat consumption has tripled. Every year, humanity is eating 160 million tons of seafood 50 billion chickens, 5 billion cows and pigs, right? And a third of the grains wow. we grow goes to livestock production. So there's a really intimate connection between what we're growing in fields and the meat we consume. And more than 70% of fresh water on this earth flows to farms. And, you know, is, is a huge part of that water demand is meat consumption. So, you know, I came into this thinking like, oh, I've got to give up all meat. Now I've really pulled back on my beef consumption because that's so much mm. more carbon intensive than pork and chicken. Um, yeah. And, you know, cows, cow methane output is amazing. One cow's annual output of methane is equivalent to the emissions generated by, the, by a car burning 235 gallons of gasoline. <laughs> right? Wow. Like it's. Wow. Yeah, meat is a big deal. Um, but yeah, yeah. I, I have tried, I think the longest I've gone was 64 days um, as a vegan. And, uh, and, I, and then someone put a, uh, a, a plate of carne asada tacos in front of me. And it was like, I, my whole body was vibrating with desire. <laughs> <laughs> I wanted it so badly. I devoured that plate of carne asada tacos. I am just someone who really likes eating uh, meat. I know. It's, it's, it's a, we are weak. We are weak. I, but I like your I like your meat as a condiment angle. Yeah. I think that's a good way of looking at it. I've I've tried to shift to that. But I, there's one very important question for me, sis, which is does a BLT count as kind of meat as a condiment? <laughs> yeah, I think that's fair. I mean, it's it's I would say the BLT would make the B sort of a third of your your sandwich, which is better certainly than a whole sandwich of bacon only. You know, I have been trying to push meat out of the center of my plate, let's say, and uh, sort of onto the periphery. I like to think of it as a as a condiment, right? And uh, let me just put it this way: I live in a state where uh, you know, any number of my neighbors and, and even friends um, are insulted by the idea of eating plant-based meats. In fact, my local Arby's had a response to the plant-based meat craze by introducing a meat-based vegetable, which they called the vegetable, the vegetable. <laughs> and they, it was sort of a, a, just a marketing gag, but they, they, they made a carrot made of hot dog meat that they called a merit. Oh, my God. 
a merit. Oh, that's terrible. <laughs> the point is, like, it's very hard to tell anyone in my community in Nashville, Tennessee, uh, that you should not uh, be able to eat your meat or that you were facing a future of no meat or that it, there's some, you have a moral responsibility to eradicate meat. So, you know, the purest sort of radical don't eat meat has caused a response of, how about we eat only meat? <laughs> <laughs> and eradicate vegetables. <laughs> oh <my gosh. laughs> um, Hot dogs shaped like carrots. That is, uh, uh, that's a horrible thing. Now, I love this detail in your book. Fish are more efficient because they float. Yeah, that's so interesting you say that because fish are cold-blooded and they don't have to fight gravity, right? And so there's a huge advantage from just an energetic standpoint. They don't have to work so hard to walk around on on two legs or four legs, and they don't have to heat their blood. Um, so they're inherently much more energy efficient than livestock, for example. You know, this, this really reinforces my fondness for the bathtub. Um, <laughs> I've always felt that floating in the tub is a superior state of being. You know? It is. So I, I'm, with the, I'm with the fish on this. Yeah, I, I like the idea that we could be conserving our caloric needs by floating around in a bathtub for a little while. Now, as part of your intrepid reporting, you signed your life away in order to eat lab-grown meat. Can you tell <laughs> us about, about that experience? Yeah, so it's interesting. I went to Berkeley, California to visit the laboratories of a company called Memphis Meats, which is at the front end of this uh, trend in what they call cell-based meats. But it's it's so fascinating to me that this is happening in Berkeley, California, which is, again, you know, the birthplace of the sustainable food movement of, you know, restaurants like Chez Panisse, the original farm-to-table restaurant, right? Like a couple miles away, there are people growing meat in laboratories. And I wanted to see this and, uh, and, and consume it. Uh, so yeah, I, I went and had a, a plate of duck breast that had been harvested fresh from a bioreactor where it had been grown. It was a little intimidating, I have to say, when they put the papers in front of me where I had to sign my life away and accept that this was uh, still an experimental product that was not yet on the market. But Uma Valetti, who's the CEO of the company, had promised me that not only had he eaten this food many times, uh, but his kids had eaten the food and they were just fine. But, you know, what I learned as I, as, as with so much of the research I did in this book, you know, I learned that it, it, it really is, um, you know, a very benign product. This is, you know, it sounds terrifying, lab-grown meat, um, but on a cellular level, it is identical to meat from an animal because it is grown from cells taken um, from an animal, kind of like a tiny biopsy taken from an an a small cell sample, and they grow that in a laboratory. What it means is that you're not having to grow the entire animal. You don't have to grow the hooves. You don't have to grow the fur and the beak and the brain and the organs and all the things we don't consume. We consume only about 40% of the entire animal. So 60% of, uh, of, the, of the product uh, is essentially waste, but it's requiring a huge amount of resources to grow that unconsumed part of the animal. Well, and the, and this, and the 60% that is waste is also the sentient part of the animal, right? So from, a, <clears throat> from an ethical and humanitarian or, or multi-species perspective, appreciating the sentience of these other animals that we raise and slaughter and eat, um, that this would be morally 
a, a great step forward. And yet on this visceral level, the idea of like, you know, twitching chicken breasts growing in Petri dishes just feels so kind of uh, dystopian and, <laughs> and nausea-inducing, right? I mean, I'm sure on the one hand, these some of these tech companies that are developing this lab-grown meat are funded by nonprofits or by people trying to trying to solve the world's fundamental problems. On the other hand, I'm sure there are a lot of people who are who are against it. Yeah, so let me back up a little bit because the way that I got to Memphis Meats is because I interviewed the then CEO of Tyson Meats um, for mm. a piece I was writing for Bloomberg, and he was investing in uh, plant-based alternatives. He was investing in Memphis Meats, in fact, and I thought this is bizarre and amazing to me that a company that slaughters billions of animals a year, literally, is investing in uh, a company making meat, you know, in a laboratory. Why is that? Um, And he said, we want to self-disrupt. We see what's happening in automobiles. We see what's happening in tobacco. We see that the meat industry is moving increasingly toward um, alternatives. And we want to invest in our own disruption. Well, Tyson investing in Memphis Meats is not unlike Toyota investing in Tesla, right? I mean, these That's exactly everybody right. sees where things are headed, and it's a real indication of how seriously it's being taken. Well, while we're talking about newfangled, crazy food technology, can you share with us your experience, Amanda, with vertical farming? Yes, I visited the largest vertical farm uh, in the world at the time. It may have been surpassed now by all the vertical farms that are getting built in the Middle East and in China and so forth. But I visited a facility in Newark, New Jersey, uh, that was formerly a laser tag center. Um, And it has these, you know, cavernous um, kind of warehouse feel. And there are stacks of trays, of metals trays that are going up about 30 or 40 feet high. And in these trays are beds of greens, arugula and spinach and kale and a whole range of sort of high-priced lettuces and and greens. And they're sitting, they're they're sitting on this kind of layer of fabric. And dangling down below the fabric are their feathery roots that are suspended in air. And they're pumping mist, like misted nutrients, into the roots of these plants. So they're growing without soil. They're growing even without water. It's just this mist of nutrients that's reaching their roots. And above them are lights that are pink. They're sort of red and blue blend of this kind of Pepto-Bismol pink beaming down onto the plants and giving them only the range of light that they need to grow quickly. And what's extraordinary about these facilities is that they use, this is called aeroponics, what I've just described. It's called aeroponics. And they use 95% less water than in-ground lettuce production. And, you know, they grow 30 or 40% faster. The problem is, of course, energy, right? You have to create an artificial sun. But it's becoming much more economically realistic to grow food this way in and near population centers. You know, you know, so we're increasingly living in these environments that can be regulated. Controlling inputs and outputs of our agricultural system seems inevitable. Uh, and, and I think it's something that's happening also 
around the world in outdoor farming, correct? I mean, just having uh, moisture sensing, uh, you know, detectors yes. and, and just a hu- dramatically more data and information flow. Yes, it's called precision farming, and we're getting much, much more information about, you know, do about precision farming in outdoor environments as well. So I don't mean to imply that, you know, we can't get better and better about resource efficiency outdoors. The thing that I want to emphasize, though, is that going forward, we need food resilience. Feeding humanity for the next 30, 50, 100 years and well beyond that is going to require resilient food systems. And that means decentralized food production. So this idea right now that almost all of the romaine lettuce, for example, that's produced in this country is produced in Yuma, Arizona and Salinas, California. So if you're a New Yorker and um, there is a major weather event or a drought in Yuma, Arizona, or a superstorm in Salinas, and it wipes out the lettuce production, nobody else has lettuce, right? Like, that's it, (laughs) right? Um, So in a time of greater weather volatility, we have to start thinking about these distributed networks of food production. And what's really interesting about vertical farms, for example, and indoor um, meat production, like these lab meat production facilities, is that you could put them in, you know, uh, fairly small-scale facilities near urban centers. So, you know, vertical farms, um, indoor meat production, lab meat production, it sounds really creepy and it sounds antithetical to a sustainable food supply, but it may just be an essential foundation in our sustainable food supply going forward. Extraordinary. Well, I'm concerned about this vulnerability of romaine lettuce because, as you may know, that is critical to the perfect BLT, is <laughs> romaine. And so I'd really I'd love, I'd love to have, I see a future where, where I have a, a small-scale home edition vertical farming platform for romaine lettuce, tomatoes, and lab, a home edition lab-grown pork uh, solution. It's funny you say that, actually, because there's a researcher at MIT uh, named Caleb Harper, and he's created these small-scale vertical farms. Uh, you could call them, he calls them food computers. And they can simulate all the conditions that are needed to grow a certain plant, let's say a tomato in southwestern Spain, right? Or the certain conditions that are needed to grow grapes in um, Burgundy, France, or something. Right, extraordinary. You could you could duplicate the local conditions. You could, yes, you could replicate the local conditions. Well, I think that segues us nicely to big idea number three. There's a growing controversy about the best way to ensure food security in the future, and we've heard Bill Gates say food is ripe for reinvention. And huge flows of investment are funding new methods of high-tech, what they call climate-smart agriculture. But many sustainable food advocates bristle at this idea of reinvention. They want food de-invented. They advocate for a return to pre-industrial, pre-green revolution, organic and biodynamic farming practices. And the rift between the reinvention camp and the de-invention camp has existed for decades, but it's now a raging battle. One side covets the past, the other side covets the future. And I have been wondering, why must this debate be so binary? Neither approach on its own will work. We need a synthesis of the two. 
Our challenge is to borrow from the wisdom of the ages and from our most advanced science to forge a third way, which is a synthesis of the traditional and the radically new. It must allow us to improve and scale our harvests while restoring rather than degrading the underlying web of life. Okay, so we have the techno-optimists and the back-to-nature heirloom farmers, two different camps, those who want to reinvent food and those who want to de-invent it. And I picture you, Amanda, driving out in the middle of this battleground in a white UN SUV, waving your hands and saying, let's all get along. <laughs> Are you a peace negotiator between these two parties? You know, I, I love the idea of waving the white flag and saying, let's come together. And I think increasingly we are seeing this common ground, quite literally, uh, you know, where there's oh, there, there are more and more stories of, you know, technologists who are developing um, new ways to protect old ideas, to protect and elevate old strategies and ideas, right? There are examples everywhere. I, 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 it's just astounding to me how many examples there are of innovators using this kind of third-way thinking, right? They're, to, they're using state-of-the-art technology not to damage sustainable food systems, but to learn from them, help elevate them, right? So they, they're they producing animal-free meats and dairy products that are nearly indistinguishable from animal-based counterparts. They're making aquaculture sustainable, uh, you know, fish farming that doesn't damage surrounding ecosystems using AI software. They're finding ways to eliminate food waste. They're using drones and soil sensors and big data to grow crops with great precision, fewer inputs, right? You know, everywhere you look, there's this kind of interesting synthesis of old ideas and new technologies. So I think you're saying that those folks, perhaps some of our listeners who feel a sense of food nostalgia, as you say, who have back to the earth kind of instincts around wanting to return to more traditional ways of, of farming, but that perhaps even those folks would agree that new technologies that enable us to put less chemicals in the earth and farm in ways that are uh, are more natural, in fact, um, are kind of, can be a common ground. And this makes me think of the story of the world's first robotic weeder, the sea and spray. And I think you witnessed the launch of this technology. Is that right? I did. I drove five hours, I think it was, um, from my home in Nashville, Tennessee, to uh, a field in Arkansas where I saw the maiden voyage of the world's first robotic weeder. And I was kind of imagining this kind of battalion of C-3PO-style robots, like marching out into the, the field, glittering gold, it, and, and with pincer hands to do the, the, the plucking of weeds out in the field. And instead, I encountered this uh, uh, kind of tractor, pretty conventional-looking tractor, with a giant white hoop skirt off the back of it. And underneath that tractor were 24 cameras using computer vision to distinguish between the crop and 
the weed and these growing sort of baby crops that uh, were emerging out of the ground just an inch and a half high and these weeds that were coming up, some of them much larger than that. And the computer could identify and speciate on the fly in the blink, literally in like a fraction of a second, to identify, oh, that's the crop we want to keep growing. That's the bad weed. And they deploy with sniper-like precision this jet of concentrated fertilizer that incinerates the baby weed and lets the plant grow and actually fertilizes the soil beneath it. And this is important because the standard method of weeding and dealing with weeds is broadcast spraying chemicals, most notably glyphosate, Mm. a.k.a. Roundup, uh, which is a carcinogenic chemical um, that we douse on our, uh, we douse, you know, by the millions of gallons on fields. And this robotic weeder is able to say, oh no, don't put anything on the plants we're going to consume. Just eliminate the weed at this baby stage and can manage that along the way. And what's powerful, what's, what's incredibly powerful is not just that this technology can actually reduce by 90 or even 95% the amount of herbicide that we're spraying on our fields, but it can introduce diversity back into agriculture, right? The reason why we monocrop fields, which means the reason why we're growing just one type of crop on a field is that we have dumb machines that can only treat the crop in one Mm. way, right? That don't really understand what's there. They can just spray one thing on a field. They can just manage a crop or prune a crop in a single way. But when you have intelligent machines that can see and distinguish between the plants in a field, and what does that do? It enables you to bring diversity into your fields to do what they call companion planting, which is one of the great kind of virtues of um, permaculture farming or farming that mimics natural ecosystems. You have diversity on your fields rather than monocropping because you have intelligent machines that can understand and treat plants differently. I mean, this was this great moment of, oh my gosh, (laughs) we can, we can, elevate and protect and support agroecology using advanced technology, right? Jorge Herod, who's the CEO of this company, Blue River Technology, as he said to me, robots don't have to remove us from nature. They can help us restore it. Well, this this really takes us full circle, doesn't it? I mean, because it's interesting. When I was reading that passage in your book about the sea and spray robotic weeder, it was it was it was an extraordinary description and it was inspiring, but I'm not sure I understood what you've what you've just shared with us, which is that that this points towards a future in which we can have companion farming, you know, be planting lots of different species of vegetables next to each other. We could be servicing them each through artificial intelligent weeding and so on. And this is precisely what's happening in the sort of back to the earth um, traditional farming, right? I mean, this is exactly what Michael Pollan espouses in his books. And I think I can perhaps see my way to a future in which your um, uh, sad or imperfect backyard vegetable garden, Amanda, is serviced by a lovely robot that (laughs) that, that (laughs) takes care of all of its needs. And you've got just a fantastic little, um, you know, farmer's market in your backyard. Yeah, no, I mean, I love, I love that uh, idea. I mean, I personally love the benefits of getting my hands in the dirt and slowing my life down and uh, tending a garden. I think there are many good reasons to actually do that and not 
hand that off to uh, robots. Um, And so I don't mean to be sort of tone deaf to the real kind of deep, soulful, you know, advantages of traditional farming. There's almost a scenario where you can imagine in the future using these super advanced technologies to get closer and closer to the roots of food production, to traditional and even ancient forms of food production, and to make that more accessible to more farmers, um, and to maintain scale and to maintain productivity um, on smaller farms. But here's the thing. All the fancy farming tech of the world won't do us any good without one crucial ingredient, water. Climate change is throwing a wrench in the global water supply. After the break, Amanda tells us how we can turn ocean water and sewage into Evian. From the minds of visionaries to the desks of disruptors, I'm Lars Schmidt, host of the Redefining Work podcast. Join me each week as we explore the new world of work through the lens of those shaping it. CEOs, HR leaders, investors, and more. Be a part of the conversation that changes everything. Subscribe to Redefining Work today. Welcome back to the next big idea. So I asked Amanda about the fate of water. We can't grow heirloom crops in vertical farms or nurture GMO seeds without it. Our water supply is obviously a huge deal. But increasingly, it seems like we either have too much or too little. So climate change is essentially a disturbance in hydrology, right? It's, it's, it's a disturbance in water systems. We have too much water in some regions. We have too little water in other regions. This is a big problem for food producers because agriculture consumes 70% of the entire freshwater supply on planet Earth. Okay, we have dramatically changed the, you know, land management and the surface of the earth by damming rivers, um, by raising forests to to grow our food over the millennia. The problem is, you know, that there it's it's not so much that going forward we're not going to have enough water to grow food. It's that the water is going to be in the wrong place. (laughs) It's going to be very hard to get the the water where it needs to be to grow the food that is necessary to support a certain population in a certain region, right? Mm -hmm. And this is true, particularly in Israel, which is on the front end of, of a lot of the innovation that is arising around what, what, what I call a drought-proof water supply, right? Israel is in a region that has dealt with water scarcity for millennia. And after World War II, Ben-Gurion, the prime minister, said, we have a responsibility to make the desert bloom, And he called on engineers in Israel to find ways to make the desert bloom, meaning find ways to create autonomous water supplies. Since then, uh, you know, for the better part of a century, there have been great advances in Israel. And I I went to Israel to see how they were developing um, multiple technologies. One is called desalination, which is where you pull ocean water in, you strip out all the salt and you make it drinkable. Uh, I also looked at um, the uh, recycled sewage technologies that have been developed in Israel and are now uh, coming uh, into the U.S. and uh, and it's the same thing. Basically, take a sewage, take your sewage water, 
pump it through uh, tiny membranes that filter out all the impurities and leave you with water that's even purer than what you buy on a shelf in the grocery store. And I know this because I actually drank some water that had previously, about six hours earlier, had been raw sewage. And it, and it, it is, you know, again, one of these kind of like impossible things to imagine. But the reason that recycled sewage water is going to be so crucial to our food future is that it takes about half the amount of energy to cycle out the impurities of sewage water than it does to cycle out the impurities in salinated water. And also the beauty of that is, again, remember decentralization, right? We all need in our own regions I am in Nashville, Tennessee. We are an inland community. I cannot pull water out of the ocean, but we sh we we sure do have a sewage supply, <laughs> right? So we can all imagine going forward that you can have these decentralized, autonomous, uh, you know, water systems, drought-proof water supplies that come from basically infinitely recycling and cleaning and filtering and reusing uh, sewage water. Extraordinary. Yeah, I'd, I'd love to. We, we live near the ocean in Long Island, and I, I'd love to uh, have a desalination system that would produce a jug of fresh water and then at the same time refill the salt shaker. You know, <laughs> I don't know if they have that technology yet. Yeah, um, sea salt, right? Sea right. Salt, Here's right. your harvest system. You have a... We can put seeds, you know, deliver flaky sea salt directly to your kitchen table well. Uh, well, also uh, a drought-proof water supply. Yeah. It's coming, it's coming. How about waste? Now, this is not a sexy topic, but so important, isn't it, as we look at the whole food system? How, how big a deal is, is waste? 52 million tons of food are sent to U.S. garbage dumps annually. Another 10 million are discarded or left to rot on farms. It's just like the numbers are staggering, right? Americans waste enough food to fill a 90,000-seat stadium every day. Holy cow. <laughs> yeah, it's, it's, it's about 25% more per capita than we were wasting in the 1970s. It's, it's a huge problem, and, and this is a harder one to address than some of the other topics we've discussed because this requires a shift in consumer thinking and mentality. My own efforts to address food waste in my household have been um, as fraught as my efforts to remove meat from our diet. Um, and the you know average American personally throws out more than a pound of food a day, right? About 400 pounds a year each. Wow. And, and so obviously we all just need to be better about not ordering too much in restaurants or not buying food we don't use. But what are, what are the other solutions? Yeah, so there are some really interesting actual tech solutions. I mean, part of the problem is that with perishable foods, you know, they perish. <laughs> um, and so there's this cool company called Appeal Sciences, founded by this um, material scientist, this young guy named James Rogers, who studied the casings, the skin and the rinds and the peels of, of fruits and vegetables that they naturally create that seal out oxygen and, and, pre and basically prevent decay. Mm. And, and he's using food to protect food, right? He's kind of creating a, a natural casing that is similar to a grape skin, for example, um, to, to create like this natural sealant that you can spray on fruits and vegetables that extends their shelf life up to about three times longer than conventional produce. So part of the problem is that like, how do you just keep perishable foods fresh longer so we have more time to eat them before we throw them out? 
But even, even then, a lot of us throw out foods just because we don't finish what's on our plate, right? This is, yep. and a lot of the problem, a lot of the culprits are parents like you and me, um, maybe, maybe not you. <laughs> no, but I'm, try I'm to, certainly part of the problem. To, who, to try to feed their kids, you know, kale and salmon and stuff that they may not want to eat. And so it's, you know, it comes out of these right. kind of good intentions, right? It's like, I want to provide healthy food to my family, but we all know what it's like to look in the fridge and realize, I just didn't eat that bunch of kale. I just didn't get to those leftovers. I just got lazy, right? Yeah. You know, there is part of it that just cannot be solved with a tech fix. This really has to be um, about a shift in consciousness. Yeah, I've, I've started not ordering entrees in restaurants because I know that I can just eat what's left over from the plates of the rest of my family <laughs> that they're consistently, you know, right. enough, enough food left over. Well, hopefully we earthlings will continue to grow increasingly enlightened in our food production. Um, and, uh, you know, there are a lot of, you, you talk about all kinds of uh, Technologies, including Soylent, which uh, is, is is very efficient. You just put the, <laughs> throw throw back a, a few bottles a day, and you're and you're good. Yeah, so I I call these post food companies, right? There's this, there's you know, some amount of consumer acceptance uh, for these kind of adult baby formula products like Soylent <laughs> that give you yeah. a you know an entire complete meal inside one bottle, um, and I um, and I really you know, resisted that and thought it was uh, totally creepy and soulless and I would never inhabit a future in which I was going to be drinking adult baby formula. Although I have now come to realize that many of my meals really lack soul. (laughs) Um, You know, I'm like eating out of a plastic takeout container. Uh, I'm eating some leftovers that I barely think about. I barely taste. I don't have this kind of moment of savoring what I'm eating. So why not just have a very low carbon um, meal at least once a day uh, that, you know, is good for my health, that's, um, you know, much less resource intensive for the planet. Um, uh, But yes, the army is researching uh, 3D printed food pellets, but it's it's personalized for each soldier. So they have sensors on the bodies of the soldiers that through their sweat, and in some cases through blood samples, can identify um, the specific nutrient needs or deficiencies in a certain soldier. So one might need potassium, another might need more um, vitamin C, um, B12, whatever. And it can send that data, the, the specific nutrient needs of a certain soldier, to the nearest 3D printer, which can then uh, print out food pellets or food bars that are particularly designed for that soldier, uh, and then deliver it ostensibly through drones or whatever else uh, to the soldier in the field. And that's that's where the research is. And I went to this Army Natick laboratory where they're doing these 3D printed food pellets. Um, and it was still very early days, right? The, the, the 3D printer, as I was watching it, got clogged up while it was trying to squirt out this food pellet. And <laughs> It was called Foodini, this this 3D (laughs) printer. And so the whole thing was kind of this hilarious kind of early stages, a little bit like the moment on the field in Arkansas where I'm watching this robot figure out how to weed a field, right? It was making mistakes. It was learning along the way. It was, you know, they're fixing the mistakes. I mean, these are very, this is very early days, but it does begin to, to kind of project a future in which 
Again, one that felt inconceivable to me as I began the research, but became much more kind of reasonable in a certain way. This notion that I might be able to relish and appreciate the diversity of foods and flavors in my life if I'm not eating a fresh meal uh, you know, three times a day, right? Maybe uh, I can have, uh, you know, my version of a Soylent or, you know, a, a complete nutrient shake or pellet, um, uh, you know, in six meals a week. And the other meals I can really focus on fresh ingredients, right? The, the climate advantages of that kind of concentrated nutrition um, with very little uh, climate impact is, is really reasonable and something we should consider. And again, you know, this is threatening to a lot of, a lot of people who think like that is a world I don't want to inhabit. Habit. <laughs> um, but, uh, but yeah, I kind of describe that, you know, the process for me of coming to terms with what is acceptable to me, what is reasonable and what isn't. And it seems now that we really have no choice, uh, you know, as you point out, to innovate. There's a, I remember when Colin Powell referred to the pottery barn rule, if you break it, you own it, and you have to fix it. He was referring to Iraq. And this is somewhat true of our planet, right? <laughs> that we've, to some degree, we've broken it or we've meddled with it. And as you point out in this wonderful book, the planet is obviously most critically attached to our food system, our, our source of sustenance. And we have no choice but to figure out how to uh, fix it uh, using technologies both old and new. Yeah, beautifully said. I, I, I couldn't agree with you more. I mean, and I think, you know, I'm, I'm very cautious about promoting kind of utopian v views, but I do think that it's very interesting that we could imagine a scenario where we have sort of the best of both worlds, right? You have um, really intelligent applications of state-of-the-art technologies, and also this revival of traditional food systems, revival of local food webs and regional food webs, revival of heirloom crops and fruits and vegetables with much more nutrient density and much more flavor, um, right? Like we can address a lot of the problems that we created uh, really after World War II and over the course of the 20th century. I mean, so much of this can be addressed as we begin to prepare for uh, and maybe even preempt uh, a lot of the climate problems that are coming upon us. And, you know, I, again, I hesitate to sort of say, like, we are moving into food utopia. Um, it's not just technological. It must be essentially about restoring and returning to traditional food systems. But there's a lot of compatibility there, and that makes me very hopeful. Well, me as well. I look forward to sampling your backyard garden, Amanda. And as a final question, I'd like to ask you, do you remember growing up when mom used to let us pick whatever food we wanted for our birthdays? <laughs> what was your favorite meal that mom cooked growing up? Oh my gosh, it's funny. You know what, I, I remember yours and I'm not even sure if I remember mine, but yours was always the, um, was the mushroom hamburgers, right? Wasn't oh, it the yes. hamburgers with the mushroom sauce? Exactly like that kind of right. red hamburgers wine mushroom with sauce? Hamburgers special sauce. It was, yeah, a, mus special it was a mushroom sauce. red wine sauce. Unbelievable. Very critically with the roasted tomatoes topped with breadcrumbs and Parmesan cheese. Oh, yes, yes, on yes. On the side oh, of maybe gosh. a little salad. The toaster tomatoes, those were so good, yes. You know, mine was, I think, the lasagna. You know, mm. I, I really loved that very sausage-heavy super goopy, lots of melted mozzarella, 
<laughs> probably four different kinds of cheeses, lasagna. And I think that's what I had. It was sort of, you know, she cooked that sauce on the stove for, for six, seven hours. It made the house smell so good. Mm. Um, yeah, I remember very much re- needing the house to smell like good food when I came home from school. Like, that was very important to me. And I always remember going into people's homes and and trying to kind of get a sense of what they ate from the way their house smelled. You know, there were houses that smelled like cookies and lasagna and um, and backyard barbecue. And then and then there were weren't. And I and I remember that kind of fascinated me as a kid. It really I I, I think the sensory experience of 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 great food it was, you know, as important to me then as it is now. I can taste that lasagna now, um, <laughs> or I can smell it. I can smell it and taste it. Well, Amanda, though you doubted my sincerity at the outset, it's been really special for me to have uh, the opportunity to talk with you on the on the podcast. So thank you so much for taking time out of your backyard gardening, teaching, and, and cricket consumption to be with us today. <laughs> thank you so much. I've loved it. Would you like to hear two more big ideas from the fate of food? Download the Next Big Idea app and check out Amanda's book bite. And why stop there? In our app, you'll also find 12-minute audio summaries of groundbreaking new books, Zoom discussions with your favorite authors, and mind-blowing e-courses. Search for Next Big Idea in your app store. Join us next week for a fascinating conversation with the one, the only, Walter Isaacson. We'll be talking about his hot new book, The Code Breaker and learning what the extraordinary people he's written about, Leonardo da Vinci, Ben Franklin, Albert Einstein, Steve Jobs, and now Jennifer Doudna, all have in common. Special thanks to my little sister, Amanda Little. Grab a copy of The Fate of Food at your favorite local bookstore. Our executive chefs are Caleb Bissinger and Michael Kovnat. Theme music by Costa Galanopoulos, sound designed by Virginia Wright. I'm your waiter, Rufus Griscom. Thanks for dining with us. See you next week.